Today's, today's sermon is taken from Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 12. Then I saw that all toil and all skin, skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after when. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. There are be the two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him and three-fold and threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So as we continue on through the book of Ecclesiastes, would you uh, ask the Lord to, to meet us this morning with me? Uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, these words that were written so many thousand years ago, uh, still have great meaning and value to us today, but we recognize that it's only by the power of your Spirit that we even have ears to hear them. So we pray, Holy Heavenly Father, send your Spirit. Uh, let your, your Spirit descend upon us this morning so that we can see Jesus in this text, so that we can hope in Him. God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing, acceptable. In your sight, O oh God, our rock, our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we continue uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we've been looking at this idea that everything apart from Jesus, that we've ever wanted, actually proves to not be enough. This is what Solomon has been doing over and over again. If you've been coming since the beginning of this, you're probably even tired of hearing that phrase, but, but our hearts don't actually believe it. Solomon looks death in the eye. We are all looking death in the eye and we're trying to find ourselves in the midst of it. We're trying to make sense of who we are in this world in light of the fact that we're not forever. In light of the fact that there's an end coming. In light of the fact that we're not eternal, we're not supreme, we're really not even that big. Right? We're, we're really, really small and we're trying to find who we are and so <clears throat> so we look to all of these 
things to find ourselves. And what we find is that as we look to created things or gifts from God, even good things, especially good things, our temptation is to to make these good things main things, God things, to try and find ourselves in them, whether it be wisdom or pleasure or work, or in this case, community, relationships. This whole passage is about relationships and and what it looks like in light of the fact that we are under the sun, meaning we're not God, right? So in in Solomon's day, so we'll kind of go to class a little bit here. In Solomon's day, uh, they had a three-tier understanding of the universe, right? So there was heaven above the skies, like above the sun, heaven, there was earth under the sun, and that's where we live. And then beneath the sun was like Sheol, the land of the the dead. And we live necessarily under the the sun. Uh, And so when Solomon says that that it was uh, under heaven or under the sun, that's, that's what he means is that here on earth, we live this life that's not eternal, that's not forever. We have these bodies that break. We've come from dust. He said this a few times, and we're going back to dust. And one of the things that we look to for meaning and for purpose and for identity is relationships. Our relationships is community. And so Solomon is talking here about relationships. And what I want us to do is actually walk through sort of a biblical theology, if you will, of relationship. Because again, this is a thing that Solomon is talking about that, that is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. Like, do, you, do you understand that God did not create you to be alone? That God created you to live in community? Or do you understand that you are not an island by yourself? Uh, and that if you feel that way, or if, if in the context of your life that's what you experience, um, and, and that hurts, that hurting is a good hurting, because God has created you to experience more than isolation. However, sin has broken all of our relationships. So as we walk through this biblical theology of of relationship, we have to start before Ecclesiastes. We have to start in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God creates everything. And then in Genesis 1, how often have we gone here in this series? Genesis 1, verse 26 through like 30, God says, let us make man after our own image, right? And that word man there just means humanity. Let us create humans after our own image. We know that because in the next verse he says, male and female, He created them after his own image. He created community, the human people. In Genesis 2, we have this story of one particular person, Adam, who God has created. And there's this amazing story where God creates Adam and and then he parades all of the animals in front of Adam to name them. And so Adam who's named by God, and God's like, from the dirt, that's where you came, that's what I'll name you. Adam literally means from the dirt. God names Adam, and then in the sense of saying, like, you're my son, and so the things that I do, you do, God says to Adam, here, name all the other creatures. And so here's this parade of of creatures. I, I don't know how it worked or whatever. I'm not here to talk about 
you know, all of that. But uh, <clears throat> at some point, Adam looks in the story and, and he sees a giraffe. And for some reason, uh, I don't know what language he would have spoke, but we're Americans, so he spoke American. Am I right? No. Um, but Adam's like, those are giraffes. Boom, done. And then he sees eagles flying overhead. Those are bald eagles, the greatest of all eagles. And then uh, he, he walks to the sea and like dolphins, or he's like, those are dolphins. And one day I want to ride one. And Adam goes through all of the animals and he names them, right? And so part of this experience is to set up what God's about to do to Adam next. Because Adam looks at all of the animals and he sees them. Those are all the giraffes doing their giraffe things. And all the multiple giraffes are eating leaves with their really long neck things. Creepy when you really think about it. Um, And all the bald eagles are like soaring over with freedom and justice and liberty. And all the dolphins are like squeaking and being awesome. And Adam's like, and none of them are like me. God didn't have Adam name the creatures just so that Adam could like, know, like be a great zoologist, right? Like Adam didn't name all the creatures just so that he could be aware of which ones exist. Yeah, you know, you just call that snake, stay away from it, right? Which he didn't. But Adam didn't do all of that for the sake of knowing the names of the animals. God had Adam do that so that in that moment, he would realize there are multiple ones of each of these, and there's only one of me. And in that moment, God, or Scripture says that, that it was not good, the first not good thing, it was not good for man, for Adam, to be alone. And so he puts Adam to sleep and creates Eve, well, woman at the time, and, and Adam wakes up, he sees her, and, and we've kind of misinterpreted this, but he says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and, and we kind of have this as simply just like a romantic thing, but what Adam is saying is, and we talk about this in, in terms of gender roles, and I want to tell you this, like Genesis 2 is not talking primarily, first and foremost, about gender roles here. It's not. In the context of the story, there are creatures that he's named that that are paired off or grouped off. And then there's Adam who's alone, who doesn't look like any of them, whose bone structure isn't like the giraffe, whose skin is not like a a dolphin or, or the bald eagle, right? But there's Adam who's alone and he looks at woman, at, at woman, and he says, finally, there's someone who's like me. Right? Genesis 2 isn't first and foremost about gender differences. It's about human community and likeness. The first thing that Adam says is, this woman, this thing, this person is like me. She looks like me, definitely more so than any of the other animals. She, she speaks. She is my community. And so God creates for Adam community. That's what's happening. And now it's interesting that the context in the first community that God creates does happen to be Adam and Eve, a marriage context, right? That's how Jesus and Paul interpret it later. And so that's how we know that that we can look to Genesis 2 in the context of marriage. But it's more than just marriage. It's family. God gives Adam community, and that community is his family. 
And so when sin comes, everything breaks, including God's, or Adam's relationship with God and Eve's relationship with God as father and their relationship with each other as family, as community. It breaks everything. And I need you to hear this because I think sometimes as Christians or as people who've been in, in churchinated enough, right, indoctrinated enough, right, this is what we think is that sin is merely an action that breaks a moral code. But it's not. Sin is not merely the breaking of a moral code. It's a violation of relationship. That's why it hurts so much. When you sin against somebody else, the reason it hurts them so much is not that it's just mere, oh, you broke God's moral law, right? We've broken a lot of laws without like the hurt that's involved in it, right? You sped before and your, your, your spouse or your brother or your friend was like, oh, you're speeding every time, right? And then just like break out crying and I can't even be around you anymore, right? No, it's not simply that sin is the breaking of a moral code. It's the, it's the violation of a relationship and we are all guilty of that. And so we see, actually, it's the, the violation of four relationships. We're only going to talk about two today, but I'm going to give you all four just so you can go home and think about it, right? It's the violation of the relationship between us and God. God created us in his image. He was our father. We violated that relationship in sin. It's the, relation, it's the violation of the relationship between us and each other, like between human community. Like sin, sin, it destroys relationship. Consider just these two things. Number one, when you're sinning, like when you're in, so we're talking about this word sin a lot, right? Uh, ultimately, we call it exchanging the truth of God for a lie, believing that you're enough or that anything other than God is enough. It's idolatry. It's sin. And when you do this, when you're caught in an activity that you know is wrong, even if, you, if you're in here and you don't hold like a Christian worldview of right and wrong, you do have some sort of sense of right and wrong. And when you're doing something wrong, the vast majority of the time, you want to do it in isolation. And if you're a Christian and you're like giving yourself over to sin over and over again, what do you want to do? Like jumping community? Hey, everybody, like, look at me. What does sin always tend to do? It pulls you out of community. It pulls you away. It isolates you. It is the opposite of community. It's a violation of community. It's not just the breaking of a moral code. And until you understand that, the full weight of sin will never crush you. And the law or the gospel can never cure you. It's not just the breaking of a moral code. If it were, hell is a ridiculous punishment. But if it's the violation of a relationship with an eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, loving, right? We need omni, omni agape. I don't know. We need a Greek like all loving God who is Father. Now all of a sudden, the weight of that is so much more. And our sin has broken all of our relationships. And what Solomon is exposing in this text is actually what's kind of the second part of, of this, is, is that 
as a result of that sin, there are now new categories of relationships with other people that, that we just never even were created to have. They're in opposition to the initial one, right? So the initial relationship is community, as family under the fathership and headship, the, the lordship of God, right? Community is family, love. Uh, I, I love how Genesis 2 says it. This is how it ends. They were naked and unashamed, right? That's not just about like making sure you have fig leaves in your Sunday school coloring books. That's saying that they actually, like they just were who they were. They didn't feel ashamed of their quirks. They didn't feel ashamed. They were free to be open because their relationship was pure and unbroken. That naked and unashamed is first because Genesis 2 is, it's first a relational understanding. They were naked before each other. They didn't have any masks. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to prove. Think about how amazing, amazing that would be. How tired do you get of trying to prove yourself to people, trying to be enough for people? You know why that is? It's because sin has broken our relationships, and this is what Solomon is saying. Now, as a result, there, there are essentially three ways that, that we, we can relate to each other. Two of them are a result of sin. One we've kind of talked about already. It's, it's the original way. The first, listen, is, it's, it's competition. There are a lot of ways you could say this. Dependence, codependency, competition. I saw that all toil and skill, this is verse 4, in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Right? So the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's talking about the fact that the fool says, I would rather starve to death than work. But what he's saying is the vain person, the one who's working their butt off in search of, in envy of, in relationship to his neighbor, that one is vanity. And so the first thing we, we see is, is this idea of competition. And what I mean by that is you look at other people to find your identity. Envy is just one of the results of those. But you look at other people and you say, I would be enough if I were like them. So you're, you define yourself over against that other person. Or if that person would like me, then I'd be good enough. Or I'd be okay. You define yourself over against them. Or you can look backwards and you define yourself over against how you've been treated. What people have been been or have done to you. So in, in my context, right, there is such great temptation to define myself in light of, in response to the father that was never a part of my life. So the way that I interact with my kids, so I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll pull this out in, in my life, right, and just expose sort of my weakness in that. My father was not there. As a result, there were a lot of things that I just did not understand about basic manhood, Right? I had all these images of like machismo, like that's what it means to be a man. And I didn't get that because I didn't have a dad who took me camping or taught me how to tie a tie or um, I don't know, whatever dads do, right? Like play, played football or sports or talked, whatever. And do you hear all the things that I'm saying though? Do you hear those things? Camping, like driving, sports, right? What, those, those don't belong to maleness. 
There's, I'm defining myself over against this relationship, and then it's causing me to incorrectly define manhood in my life. And now, as a father, I'm trying to redeem that and prove that I am not who he was. So listen to this. Listen to how this broken relationship works. Now, I'm looking for my manhood and my justification and my identity in my children. I see this all the time. I catch myself all the time. You need to, like, I get so angry if they, if they disobey or I get really sad for them if they fail or if, if I'm, I, I get afraid. I'm a grown man, and I'm afraid that a kid, like this, she's, she's nine or a six-year-old, I'm afraid that they might not like me, right? That's, that's ridiculous. No, it really is. I'm 33, and sometimes a three-year-old's got me like, what do you want me to do, you know? <laughs> like, that's, that's... But why? Why am I now controlled by my children? Because relationship after broken relationship has caused me to identify myself in the context of, of him or of them. Right? And we all have this inclination, this proneness to do that. I want to be like them. In fact, I want to be them. Right? Like, we... We have advertising campaigns from my childhood that were driven by that, right? I want to be like Mike. I can sing every word to that Gatorade commercial. Right? I really could, and I'm not going to because of time, but I may do it at, at, the, uh, at the potluck. So there's, there's an invitation perhaps that <laughs> but I could, right? Sometimes I dream that he's, okay. Anyway. I try to be like Mike. That was the whole thing. What is that? That's, that's this like envy, this right? And what does it breed? Either idolatry or like hate. How many times do you hear people just speak so venomously about somebody? And then in the end, what you realize is like, oh, they're just jealous. Like, oh, they just envy that person. Oh, they think that person has some sort of security that they don't have when in fact that person has all these insecurities. They just look different than yours, right? Like there's, it's folly identifying yourself against other people and trying to live your life in that way. That's why Solomon says that. That's why he says it's, it's chasing after the wind. It's, it's competition. But then there's another category that some of you may experience. It's isolation. It's, it's independence, like radical independence. So you're, you're, so sorry, dependence, competition, your identity is defined in reference to other people. And in independence, your identity is, defi- is defined as specifically being apart from other people, right? Like in high school uh, and middle school, we had a lot of these people who wanted to be very different from other people. I won't categorize them, but they like to wear like black makeup and Victorian outfits and be very different, except they were all different in the exact same way, which the irony always seemed to be lost on them in that. But here's the thing is they define themselves in isolation and so many people live in isolation and and isolation doesn't just mean like you're a hermit like who lives in in a cap, you know, you're not like Ron Swanson who if he could would just live in a cabin with his buried gold away from everybody else just killing things and eating it right like that's not just isolation some some extroverts have have mastered the art of isolation some of you can be in a room full of people and be completely isolated and unknown 
have no one. Listen to what he says. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? So that's the person who's miserable because they have no community. They're not living in relationship with anyone else. They're not giving themselves away for the sake of anyone else. They're not known by anyone else. They have no one. And if you see this person, they probably have a lot of money, right? They're Ebenezer Scrooge, right? That's who he's describing. They have no family, no friends. I mean, they've got blood, but nobody who knows them or loves them or that they love. They're hoarding all of this wealth, and they are miserable. I love A Christmas Carol for that. Like, you are in chains. You have forged chains for yourself in your isolation. And remember what I said, isolation before is sin. Right? Like, it is the opposite of community. It's the opposite of what you were created to be. Sin loves isolation in your life. The quickest way to be consumed by sin, the quickest way to lose yourself to it, is to isolate yourself from a loving community that seeks to serve and know and care for you. So we isolate ourselves from one another. Then Solomon, and this is rare in Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us another way. We're going we're gonna to fly through this. <laughs> but this is, this is amazing just because usually by the end of reading a verse of Ecclesiastes or like a passage, we're all just kind of like, like, why did we do this again? But now he says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one has not another to lift him up. Listen to this again. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now all of a sudden we have this new understanding that can happen. What's funny about the new understanding, it was, it was the original understanding, community, right? Interdependence. Like we need one and other community. We're not defining ourselves by competition. We're not defining ourselves in isolation, but we are defined by God, but needing one another. This is community. And here's what's interesting is that when you break it down, competition and isolation are actually just the flip side of the same broken coin. Your life is still defined by others. It's apart from God. You still have broken relationships with everyone. You just go about it differently. But in this third way, this third way, we see that there's community. And and what I love is that as we move away from Solomon, as we put Solomon in his context, because remember I said we're going to give a biblical theology of it, so we're going to start from the beginning. We're going to work our way to the end, through, in, and through Jesus. What we see is that true community, when we look at it, is that Genesis 2 community. It's community that is family. It's community that 
<coughs> of people who are so clearly defined by their relationship with their father that they can be naked and unashamed with one another. It's community where you live for the other, to serve and care for, to love the other. That is this community. And, and, and in light of our sin, that means that there's only one way to get through this, to this community. And it's, 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 it's amazing to me. Like, this is how scripture talks about it, and I love it, all throughout. So the first thing you have to do is actually die to yourself. Community is difficult. Like, you need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that. Family is difficult. When I say family is difficult, it's a lot easier for everybody to be like, yep, yeah, family is difficult. When you say community, because community, sometimes you like think about your friends, right? And you're like, oh, no, we just have a ball. We get together, we drink, we, we eat, we, we just, like, it's great, right? But then they say, well, family is difficult. And you're like, yep, yes, family is difficult, right? And you know that. But what that means is that there are times where you're going to have to die to yourself. See, true community takes death. We die to our self-centered notions of relationship. We die to our envy and our despising of others. We die. But true community then takes new life. We find life and identity in Jesus. And so this new life that we live now frees us to love without being loved in return, to serve without getting a thank you, and to be served. Not as arrogant people who say we have it all together, but as people who know that we're broken and need one another. I am one. I need another. I need others. Listen, uh, in short, what we're talking about is the church, and the church is made possible by Jesus. And this thing that I said, you have to die to yourself and you have to be made new, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was crucified. He died because of our broken relationship. His life was severed. His relationship with God was severed. It was perfect, and he gave it up so that we might have relationship. But then he was risen again and, and, and in victory over death and over the curse and over this brokenness. And as a result, I love it, right? The curtain tears from the top to the bottom and everyone has access now to community, to God, to the true identity and true life together. Community is possible. Family is possible. It's the church that's why we do what we do. That's why the church is not like a family. It is a family. It is. Bound by the blood of Jesus. With God as Father. Jesus as our elder brother. And with us as brothers and sisters together. And then as we understand that, we begin to understand that Genesis 1 through now, biblical family is always, always, always understood in the context of mission. God creates woman after the likeness of man, and he doesn't just leave them to, like, enjoy it. Like, go get it. You know, what does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Work the garden and keep it. You two are together for a purpose. Community exists for a purpose. Family ought to exist on mission. If you're here in your family, if you're parents, or if you're married, or in the context of your family, um, is your family living and existing together on mission? And then if you're here in a member, like, do you understand that we are called to live life together on mission? Solomon comes through and each of the things that he says are about mission. Woe to one who doesn't have anyone to work with him. 
Woe to one who doesn't have anyone to pass on his work to. It's in the context of mission. Jesus comes and he says, you're a family now. Let your light and love so shine that people see your good works and glorify God who's in heaven. He gathers them together in Matthew 28 and he says, go make disciples. They'll know you're my disciples by your love. So go make other disciples. Family, the biblical family is always understood in the context of mission, whether it's be fruitful and multiply or whether it's go and make disciples. Mission drives community. It drives the biblical family. And at the same time, the biblical family fuels mission. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. We need healthy Christians to be unleashed in our world where life exists, to make disciples who make disciples. We need healthy Christians, and what that means is that we have to understand our identity, not in relationship to other people, but first in relationship to God. Like we sang it, do you believe that he's a good father and you're loved by him? That he's a father who has deep love for you? Jesus says in John 15 that as the father loved Jesus, so Jesus loves us. Like, do you believe that you are, like, you get intertrinitarian love? I just like that word. Like, the way God loves himself, God loves you. Let the truth of that sit in. Then all of a sudden, what do you have to lose or gain from anyone else? If the God who created everything is your father, what can I take from you? And what do I have to offer you? Nothing. So we can love and live life together. We're the church. We're a family. We need to be that. If you're here and you, you don't don't know this family, it's offered to you freely in Christ Jesus. Freely. Jesus wants to be your brother and he wants you to know his father so that you're not alone. Happens by faith.